0: Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are the ladies of Groundworks, Inc. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. We Dig Plants aims to bring the culture to horticulture. (laughs) And in doing so, we want to talk today about... President's Day. We <laughs> of had course. We had to lump the two presidents together into one week, right, to make it President's Week. That's right. I think they made it the National Week, honor. Yeah. Nobody cares. They just want the day off. Right? Or they want the sales, you know. That's right. <laughs> it's really about washer and dryers and cars. Um, America. <laughs> yes, exactly. But we're supposed to be celebrating our foundation and the personalities that help create our national identity, right, right. Alice? Right, yes. So, that often gets missed. It's the t- And it's the t- to our agricultural history, to the land and our, and our reasons for its colonization. So we have an amazing guest today to help describe our founding fathers and our founding farmers. That's right. The gardeners that strove to cultivate our history and our mission. Um, our guest today is garden historian from London, Andrea Wolfe. Her book, The Founding Gardeners, The Revolutionary Generation, Nature, and the Shaping of the American Nation, was published in 2011 by Knopf and has been a huge focus of us for several months now. Welcome, Andrea. Hello. Hi, Andrea. Hi, thank you for having me. And yeah. Andrea's calling in from, are you in London? I am in London, indeed, yes. Well, that
1: seems very appropriate that That's we're having right. this <laughs> transatlantic conversation. That's what's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and we're actually having a very um, London-ish, wet, rainy, warm day here.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: really, we had a very, very
2: sunny, lovely, blue sky day here today. Oh,
1: <laughs> wonderful! Well, let's. Uh,
0: I'd like to tell our audience a little bit about Andrea. Andrea Wolf was born in India and moved to Germany as a child. She lives in Britain, where she trained as a design historian at the Royal College of Art. And her book, Founding Gardeners, went to number 32 on the New York Times bestseller list. And wasn't it also in the top 50 by the Kirkus Review? I think it was one of the top books of 2011, yes. which is, yep, is really was. quite an accomplishment. It's a fascinating Thank read. Thank you. Um, she's written for the Sunday Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Garden and Q Magazine, and reviews for several newspapers, including the Guardian, New York Times, the Times Literary Supplement, and the Mail on Sunday. She has also lectured widely to large audiences at the Royal Geographical Society and the Royal Society in London, the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, Monticello, and the Missouri Botanic Garden, amongst many others. She is a three-time fellow of the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello, and she is a regular contributor on BBC Radio and Television. And she's also written several other amazing books as well. Um, this Other Eden, The Brother Gardeners, and Coming Out This May, Chasing Venus, which is about um, the, was it the Royal Hortico- Royal Society that sent out the ships to go uh, measure and view the transit of Venus? Exactly. So
2: not, absolutely nothing to do uh, with God. So I went from the earthly pleasures to the heavenly pleasures now.
0: <laughs> That's great. So, Andrea, why... Um, so, why did this American subject interest you? Tell us about that a as little a, bit. As a
1: British woman. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, as a, as a German who lives in Brittany, how dare I write about the American <laughs> founding fathers? Um, I really, I think I came to it really by accident while I was researching um, my previous book, The Brother Gardeners, which is about the British obsession with gardens. Right. And, um... One of the protagonists in The Brother Gardeners is John Bartram, who was an 18th century American farmer and plant collector, who from the um, early 1730s for about four decades sent hundreds and hundreds of seed boxes full of American plants, trees and shrubs mainly, to England and completely transformed the English um, landscape. And while I was doing research On him, um, it was really through his letters and his um, accounts that I realized this remarkable connection to the founding fathers. So he had been, for example, a very good friend of Benjamin Franklin. And as I kind of read on through diaries and manuscripts, I came across um, a visit of the delegates of the Constitutional Convention in 1787 to Bartram's Garden. There was an invoice to George Washington, who had ordered hundreds of trees and shrubs, Ed, John Adams had visited, Madison, Jefferson had even time to visit while he was writing the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> so I thought, like, right. there's something going on I'm missing here, yeah. and, um, but it was only really when I followed Bartram's footsteps through the Appalachian Mountains that I realized just how important nature and plants had been for the Founding fathers, because. I was um, I was literally passing Charlottesville, and I thought, like, I'll just stop and have a look at Monticello, at the, you know, <laughs> the home of the writer of the Declaration right. of Independence. And it was... Just a quick when trip. When I went up to the mountaintop, <laughs> and I was standing on the 1,000-feet vegetable terrace, mm-hmm. that I just suddenly realized that this is the work of a revolutionary gardener who yeah. seemed to have crafted his grounds as carefully, really, as his words. And I think it's... Uh, I think when you're standing on that vegetable terrace and you see, you know, you see like neat rows of vegetables at your feet, but at the same time you see this kind of amazing, beautiful, vast landscape just kind of stretching out in front of you. That, that, That was for me the moment where I realized that this is something so uniquely American, this combination of the beautiful and the productivity of the land i suppose and that's that's really that was i would say that was the moment that kind of gave me the inspiration for this book when i started to think okay i need to i need to read a little bit more here and i kind of you know went to their letters and realized that almost Almost every letter they wrote, they mentioned somewhere, you know, trees, seeds, agriculture, the fields. I mean, the letters between Jefferson and Madison, for example. There's, I don't think there's a single letter where they don't mention somewhere, agriculture, plants, or trees. So it was very much, part, uh, very much kind of like their, uh, on on the top of their agenda, I suppose, really. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it was it was lovely to read in your book um, about Jefferson's kind of British tour. Um, uh, of the gardens in England and and how they influence the design of Monticello and and the positioning of a farm on a hill versus down in the valley where it's much more pragmatic, where the water is, you know, that that he he really... it, it is weird because if you if you look
2: at Monticello, you're thinking like this is a bit crazy to put the you know the garden on top of the mountain where there's no water. And st- I mean just still today they're still struggling in, in, in dry summers to get the the water up there. Right. But yes, it was. So it was Jefferson and Adams went on a garden tour in um, 1786, and at that time, Adams was the um, American minister in London, and Jefferson was the American minister in Paris. Mm-hmm. and Adams had problems with the trade negotiations with the British, So he asked Jefferson to come over, who came, and then um, they were having real problems with their trade negotiations. And uh, what else would you then do? <laughs> you know, you go on a you go on the garden tour. if it, You know, <laughs> everything kind of gets stuck with kind of diplomatic relationships. You just go off. So they go on this big garden tour, and um, they go to several gardens, and what they see... Is they see what was very fashionable in England at that time, they see um, so-called ornamental farms. So these are gardens which combine really elements of a working farm with elements from a pleasure ground. So this is a garden where you would see shrubberies and flower beds, but you also see pastures and fields and sheep in the garden. Mm-hmm. And and again, it was this combination of the beautiful and the useful that very much appealed to them. So both of them, when they returned to America and when they started to create their gardens kind of much later, they incorporated these elements because it very much chimed with their vision of America as a country of vast lands that would feed the nation, but also of, you know, sublime beauty.
1: Right. And I love um, the opening... um Pair, a couple of pair, um chapters in your book where you 're really describing washington um, in the revolution and really where his head is 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 back in um, At his Mount farm. vernon yeah. um, trying to you know kind of figure out what what plants he wants to plant <laughs> yeah I, I I
2: have to say when i when I came across um there's one letter which really struck me as so extraordinary. So this, is, um, so this is the summer of 1776, and George Washington is the commander-in-chief, and, and their headquarters are in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, Manhattan has pretty much become you know an armed camp where there are soldiers in the street everywhere. And New York is facing 30,000 British troops. So this is the largest enemy fleet that has ever um, uh, arrived at America's shores. And... Washington has about half the manpower. So, so you would think that all he has on his mind, really, is military strategy. But a few days before the Battle of New York, which is one of the you know, the biggest and most important battles in the, in the War of Independence, he sits down in his headquarters. He kind of sends out his generals. He brushes aside his military maps. And he sits down and he writes a letter to his estate manager in Mount Vernon asking him to design a new garden. So, mm-hmm. so you have this scene of, you know, there's like blood and ca- the chaos of cannons is kind of looming and, and, and Washington is actually thinking about trees and shrubs. And what is even more extraordinary is that at that moment when the nation is, you know, is in danger to be crushed by the almighty British army, he is advising his estate manager, to only plant native american species so he's telling him go to my forest and pick up these plants and Mm -hmm. these shrubs and plant them in my garden Mm -hmm. so it's just it's almost it's almost as if this is his horticultural declaration of independence it's 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 his or it's his private statement of independence it's almost like he doesn't want to have an English tree um clawing its roots into his soil in Mount and he only wants to have american trees so it's it's a it 's a political statement very much so i think
1: yeah there there's a, a couple of quotes um that i 'd like to um to, to use from from your from your book uh, plantation owners when one of them reads plantation owners like Washington and Jefferson had no control over the sales of their own harvests and they felt the pain of the economic chains. Washington had stopped growing tobacco and was trying to find alternatives in the hope that the new crops would break the dependence to Britain by supplying the home market in America instead and his other quote is: Washington's other quote is nothing in my opinion would contribute more to the welfare of the states than the proper management of our lands. So when you think about him as a commander in chief and then you think about him as a gardener and farmer and a farmer and then you think about him you know fighting and protecting our lands that's that's the the root of American ideology I think and democracy. Yeah. Yes, is
2: that I mean I think we tend to sometimes forget that but all of them like Adams Washington Jefferson Madison all agreed that agriculture should be the foundation of an America and they very much saw so, um Amer- or they very much understood that America's independence political independence would only function if it would be economically independent and right. that would be very much based on agriculture yeah. on being self-sufficient and um the the that they were basically controlled by British merchants. You know, a lot of, yes. kind of southern plantation owners didn't like that at all, obviously. Right. And well, that, they, yeah. they, I mean, Benjamin Franklin, for example, when he is in London just before the declaration of uh, independence, he very much um, understands this, too. And he sends, like, the, long, the more he believes that independence is inevitable, he starts to send let hundreds of um seeds over which might be useful in America so mm-hmm. he's kind of frantically collecting pro- possible you know useful crops from England to send them over to to America to kind of try them out there and they they're always testing and jefferson very much believed that the I mean, he says something like, "The greatest service you can um, you can do for your country is to introduce a new plant, is to introduce a useful plant." And all his life, he's testing new species and discarding them if they are not good. So the vegetable terrace in Monticello is not so much to feed the family; it's much more his. Scientific testing. lab where yeah. he's trying out new species of vegetables.
0: Yeah, a testing yeah. ground. I visited it on a couple of occasions, and it's an extraordinary place. The house, the grounds—you can see the great mind at work there. Yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah.
2: I, I think I think what what I find extraordinary is that we tend to see gardening as a kind of you know so we, that, that's what we do in our leisure time. It's a pastime. It's a hobby. Um, But for them, it's very much a political statement. So, for example, they're all obsessed with manure. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just that, when I kind of came across that, I thought like that's a rather, you know, the <laughs> first four presidents of the United States are totally <laughs> obsessed with manure. And um, Washington, for example, uh, is so enraptured by the subject that he, um, he wants a farm manager who, and he says, would might as like convert everything he touches into, into manure yeah. as the first transmutation towards gold. And uh-huh. Adams, for example, jumps into a pile of manure in London and kind of like teases it apart. I mean, he is like not minding the muck on his hands, and then he's declaring, this is not equal to mine. You know, mine is much better. So for us, that might seem a little bit funny or something like this, but it's very much part of their political agenda because the soil, especially in Virginia, where there's so much tobacco cultivation, is totally uh, depleted. So in Mm -hmm. order to produce, a lot of, you know, in order to have a good harvest, they need to do something with the soil. So they're constantly reading about, you know, the latest ways of improving soil by crop rotation with manuring. Um, so it's, it's really part of their nation building agriculture.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, it's also fascinating. We're, we're going to have to take a break in a second, but I once read a quote that actually, if the Dutch had kept this the states if there had not been the sale of Manhattan right um, that our our whole idea of democracy and ideology would be completely different I think oh, I believe that because the Dutch were such better farmers than the British ever were and and there's the constant comparison between you know the English garden and then like you say our founders you know comparing themselves to to Britain and also to, you know, gardening procedures. You know what I mean. But yet yeah, yeah. I mean
2: they they are they are very frustrated about the the way American gardening and farming works, and they are constantly. I mean they're I mean, although you know America has declared independence, Washington, for example, is always um, in contact with. Uh, English agricultural writers Mm -hmm. trying to get, like, the latest books, the latest information. Um, He always wants to have um, European farm managers because they know much better how to kind of deal with the soil. So it's incredibly important for them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, we have to take a break for a second. Hang on to the line. Andrea, we'll be right back, and then we'll talk talk about Washington and Mount Vernon, which is really fun.
0: And Like this. this program was sponsored by White Oak Pastures. The Harris family has lived and farmed White Oak Pastures for 145 years. They are committed to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. Their mission? We take care of the land and the herd, and they take care of us. For more information about their cattle and their farm, visit whiteoakpastures.com.
2: America
0: Sweet America You know God done shed his grace on thee He he crowned that good Yes he did
1: Harry Brotherhood Welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We're talking about President's Day, and uh, we've got an amazing uh, writer and garden historian who wrote a book called The Founding Gardeners. Uh, Andrea Wolfe is on the line from uh, from London. London. So, Andrea, let's talk for a second about um, Mount Vernon, Washington's homestead, and um, the desire to Washington's desire to design it as a mirror of the revolution ideology with native trees, um, the tearing down of hedges, a departure from the English style, um, an ornamental garden that would be planted with native species. Let's talk a little bit about, about that. We touched on it.
2: Yeah. So- washington i mean throughout the throughout the war he only you know he only goes back once to Mount Vernon, but what he does is what's really interesting like once a week he will write a very long letter to his estate manager and he'll also um expect reports back so stuff is happening there during the war, so he you know he he instructs his estate manager to kind of rip out certain bits of the garden and to plant native species but it's really when he returns after the war of independence that he um totally redesigns the garden. So he comes back, um, he spends about a year um, sorting out, you know, his accounts and answering letters and stuff like that, and then it's almost um, with it. So he comes back in December um, eighty three, and then it's exactly a year later with, with the beginning of the new year in January, which you know, not the greatest month to start um, <laughs> redesigning your garden. And he's trans- uh, The, the yeah. soil is still frozen. He's transplanting and he's just, trees. <laughs> you know, he's going out there. He's marking up trees, and he is. Creating these shrubberies which are um, in front of the house around a big, you know, expanse of lawn, which he calls the bowling green. And around it, he plants these kind of ir- irregularly planted shrubs and trees. All of them, entirely all of them, are Native American species. And for us, that might not seem that extraordinary today, but at that time, um, it is absolutely revolutionary what he's doing because. Until then, American gardeners had tried to recreate the old world in their garden. So they're trying to re- re- recreate European gardens, English gardens. You know, your garden is the better the more kind of European plants you have in the garden. Right. And um, and, that and that was it generally true with ripping them all out and replacing them with native species, which a lot of American gardeners would have almost regarded as weeds because they're just, you know, out there, outside their garden gate. So why would you put that in your garden? And um, so he's creating what I would call the very first truly American garden. Um, so it's, it's he uses his garden almost like as a canvas to make this political statement. And the question is, you know, why is this important? I think it's important because he's making obviously a very deliberate choice there and he knew, because he was the hero of the war, that Mount Vernon is going to be, you know, the most visited private house in the country. And the first thing that visitors would see who arrived at Mount Vernon was exactly that bit of the garden mm-hmm. where he only plants the native species. So it's a it's a big, big statement he's making now.
0: Yeah. And it's very interesting. I mean, if he's getting plants from Bartram and from other American collectors, I mean, Bartram was exporting tons of American species to England where they were exotic and and you know, were welcomed, right? And yet in our own backyard, American gardeners are still trying to be sort of referential back to Europe, not just in gardening taste, but in everything. Everything that was imported was better, right? Andrea, you know, cloth, cloth, food. And I think think the funny thing
2: is actually that um, it was like when Jefferson and Adams went on their garden tour in England, that's when they suddenly realized that the English garden is almost entirely made up of American plants. And they go and say, like, oh, we can yeah. do that at home, but it can be a patriotic statement. So, But the interesting thing is that Washington, for example, in order to learn how to cultivate the American species, he had to read English garden books right. because there were no American garden books about how to... Um, how to look after American plants, so he 's buying English horticultural <laughs> publications to learn how to propagate American species, so it 's this kind of weird loop that's going uh, happening there
1: yeah let's let 's talk about also um, some of the other founding gardeners um, let let 's talk about there was a kind of a New England tour. Uh, That happened between, among friends, James Madison and Jefferson, where they went up the Hudson River. And this was at a time when really the Federalists were becoming a very popular party and then the Republicans were becoming, you know, a, a popular party. So it was like Hamilton and Adams. And their strong central government and commerce with Britain ideology versus Jefferson and Madison that were much more of the mind state of the power of the states and individual liberty. So there's this kind of political brewing that goes on. And then there's this. Yeah, so they
2: they basically they go in the summer of 1791. Jefferson and Madison go on this botanical tour, really, of the New England states. And um, so this is a time when Hamilton, who is the Secretary of the Treasury at that moment, is introducing um, kind of his financial plans for the thirteen states. But he's also trying to establish um, very close commercial ties. With Britain, right. which is something, and, and he's encouraging manufacturing, which is something that Jefferson and Madison uh, didn't approve of at all. So they go on this um, New England tour, and what they're doing there is they're taking um, ex- very extensive notes on agricultural practices. They also meet Republican supporters, so it's like a half botanical, half political um, tour. But what is even more extraordinary is that they are also. Um, trying to, they're looking at agriculture almost as a, you know, botanical weapon against Hamilton's exactly. vision <laughs> of commerce, yeah. because they are, they're really interested in um, sugar maples, um, the cultivation of sugar maple and the production of sugar from sugar maples, um, mm-hmm. because they believe that if farmers, American farmers, would plant enough sugar maple orchards, America would not need to buy molasses from the British West Indies. Which would then reduce the necessity to trade with the old enemy. So they took to farmers, they took to local um, landowners and after the tour, Jefferson goes to the Prince's Nursery, which is on Long Island, and he buys every single sugar maple seed, seedling that was available in the nursery um, and, pass, and then send them to Monticello to be planted there. So they were really trying to undermine um, Hamilton's vision of america as 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 a merchant nation and they were you know they were planning um they were like looking at america as an agricultural republic and in in that respect it was very important again to find useful crops but it was i mean the, the sugar maples were really used as a way to cut the ties the commercial ties with britain
0: right Right. Because even then we had an amazingly large sweet tooth, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) We If we we could just reduce, now it's oil, you know, and then it was, if we could just reduce our
1: dependence on molasses, (laughs) we're going to be all right. (laughs) (laughs) I like the the quote from your book. um, The old friends observed the landscape as gardeners and plantsmen. They saw a republic of farmers spread out before them. A nation to their mind was endangered by Hamilton's plans. The scenery was one of meadows newly snatched from uncultivated nature and a mix of romantic wilderness and cultivated beauty. I thought that was a nice quote. Yeah. And it's yeah, also-
2: that's not, it, it, it's again, I mean they they always they always have this eye for the beautiful and the useful, which I think is it just comes through all of their writing, which is, which for me is something very, very um, like typical kind of American, um, which is very much also expressed in their gardens. They're always trying to combine these two. They so they don't just want to create a kind of pretty garden. They are always useful element um, incorporated. So, for example, uh, Washington has, in the midst of his shrubberies, he has his toilets and uh, they are his outside privies, and he builds them like little temples. Now, in, in England, if you walk down a shrubbery, you walk down this meandering path, you would enter you know, it would end with a pavilion or a statue, and but Washington puts his toilet there. So yeah. you know, it's this—it's a beautiful shrubbery. It's a beautiful little temple, but it's also something useful,
1: pragmatic,
0: right? And we have to yeah. remember, they're—they're they're men of the Enlightenment, right, Andrea? I mean, there so many new things are coming yeah. through in science and medicine that you know they're just trying to keep up. You know? Yes, and and there I, I I mean,
2: if you look at Jefferson's writing, I mean he's such a polymath and that I mean all of them are really yeah. um John Adams also I mean John Adams writes long botanical essays about seaweed, which are really <laughs> boring to read, I have to say. <laughs> but you know, he's like investigating the different properties of different you know, types of seaweed as manure. So so they are very much looking at this also with a kind of scientific eye yeah mm-hmm.
1: let's let's talk for a second about um, I love this pest um, they it's the scourge of heaven or it's also called the Hessian fly the Hessian fly okay. yeah which is analogous to the uh, ungrateful colonies and the rebellious people can you describe <laughs> that a little bit <laughs>
2: well the, the Hessian fly
1: was to have
2: been brought over. That's why it's called the Hessian fly in the straw beddings of the Hessian troops in the Revolutionary War. Which they, it wasn't, but it was. Um, it was a really terrible um, uh, pest because it was a, a larvae of a fly that kind of sucked the sap from the green weed and stunted the growth of the plant and basically destroyed the crops. And it was. Um, it had kind of started around. New York, but it was spreading out really, really fast. So um, Washington was battling with it in Mount Vernon. And then years later, it came um, all the way down to Virginia. And it became almost a political issue because the English, um, in particular, um, on on the advice of Joseph Banks, who was the president of the Royal Society in London, closed, at some stage, closed uh, their ports to American wheat because they were they were worried that the um that the Hessian fly would come into right. England through that. And Thomas Paine became involved and he told Banks that he believed that this embargo was only a political manoeuvre. And um Jefferson thought Banks was only doing that to injure the um the colony. So they they again, it kind of goes back and forth and then the a former British Prime Minister basically believed that the Americans deserved the Hessian flag because yeah. they had, you know, they had been so utterly ungrateful to the mother country.
1: That's what I love about it: is is just this, you know, this idiosyncratic pest, and then it just takes on this, you know, <laughs> unbelievable proportion of national political importance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right, let's talk also then about the idea of a national university and the adjacent botanical garden as a symbol of national unity um, by George Washington, as men from across the differing states would study together and form friendships among a forest of different trees of America, which was the, yeah. the quote with, for the design of the National Arboretum. Yeah. So, I mean,
2: none none of them, none of the first four presidents actually saw the a, a National Botanical Garden kind of happening, but they all tried to get one um, going in, in Washington, D.C. The idea behind it was really, I mean, Washington's idea behind a national university was really that he said, okay, you know, There there are these 13 states. We are together now, but we we really have to mature from just being a war alliance to becoming a truly united nation. Mm -hmm. And um, and because, you know, people from Virginia saw themselves as Virginians, not so much as Americans, and people from um, uh, South Carolina um, Carolina saw themselves as kind of southern. So there's this very – they sometimes, when they talk, for example, about plants, when Washington talks about plants – from the new england states he talks about exotics yeah. because they're not native to virginia so we have to kind of bear in mind that you know these are these were 13 very different states and they were suddenly kind of clumped together and and he believes that if you would bring these young men together at this kind of young age studying together learning together they would un, they would become one and they would be they would have america's um they would kind of believe in America's destiny as a kind of united um, country. Mm -hmm. And the Botanical Garden should belong to the university because if they would see all these trees from all 13 states growing together in kind of horticultural union, again, that would give them a sense of uh, we are one country. The
1: symbol of, right, exactly. Yeah. But I think New Yorkers still see themselves as somewhat exotic
0: <laughs> compared to the rest of the states. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, I mean, now, you know, to go from New England to South Carolina, it doesn't take very long. But then, you know, on horseback, how long did it, you know, how, how far could a, a man on horseback go, or even with a carriage? A yeah. hundred miles? Well, not not even, even. You know, yeah. 70? They, I mean, it took, it took when,
2: um, when Jefferson went from uh, Washington, D.C. to Monticello, which now is a two-hour drive. Right, yes. that took him like four or five days.
0: Right, that's what's astounding that we, you know, these thirteen colonies, which were a very large landmass relative to England, mm-hmm. for example, right? I mean, when England has weather, uh, it affect. It's pretty, you know, it's kind of like Italy. It's pretty small. It's a small area. It's the size of like Florida. So. It's similar weather throughout most of the nation, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. there was radical differences and huge distances in this newly created nation. So it was it was very sort of forward thinking and amazing that Washington and the other founders would would, you know, think about doing this right away. Don't let it sort of fall apart. You know what I mean? We have to glue it together quickly
1: Well, from sea to shining sea, you know, let's let's jump forward and talk a little bit about Thomas Jefferson, July 1803 and Meriwether Lewis's journey across the United States on the heels of the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah, that was a massive expansion as well, of course. So the tour was to document, among other things, the soil and the face of the country, its growth and the vegetable production um, and and. Meriwether Lewis was instructed by Jefferson to use the paper of the birch tree um, as note paper, which would protect against dampness in the field. And he was to record the dates of particular plants, um, when they flower, when they're in leaf, you know, etc. And all of this was to gain information which was actually more important than seeing the Pacific Ocean, (laughs) Jefferson asserted. Um, And should conflict be evident, he was, uh, Meriwether Lewis, was instructed to retreat in order to protect the information that he had obtained. So really, it was to discover profitable crops, flowers with exotic shapes and sizes, and trees that could soar higher than those already encountered. So this is really the American glorification of all this vast wilderness. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, the, the, uh, the
2: Lewis and Clark expedition for Jefferson, for Jefferson was incredibly important because it was doing two things. One thing is if you believe in an agrarian republic, the one thing you really need is a lot of land because when the country expands, when you have more and more farmers um, you need more land, and they truly believed that the kind of independent farmer with their small self sufficient farms that they were the foot soldiers of the nat- of the nation, so in that respect, it was incredibly important, but it was also the kind of first scientific expedition um, for the Americans um, to put together and and when you read. Jefferson's instructions to Lewis, it is really a blueprint of Enlightenment thinking. But the, all the things he instructs him to do, but when Lewis comes back and when he kind of describes what he's seen, it's almost like as if the kind of the shriveled little seeds kind of held the, you know, the the possibilities of a of a you know of a of a bright future in them, and and it was it was really the beginning of the celebration of america's wilderness because until then i mean co- colonists had seen the american wilderness <clears throat> excuse me almost it was it was a hindrance it was an obstacle to settlement it was something annoying it was not something to celebrate and it was really um through the, the america's na- nature became Part of the national identity became part of being one country. It was because the Americans had to find something that was better in the new world than in the old world because mm-hmm. europe had ancient ruins and poetry and all these kind of things and, yes. and and america was such a young nation they had to find something that was better and they found that in the spectacular landscape where everything was bigger and better the trees were higher the mountains were higher the you know, it was vaster and that became very much part of a, a
1: kind of expression of this young strong new nation Mhm. Yep. As strong as the mountains. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Andrea, we're out of time. Um, I recommend that everybody read this book. It is just fascinating. It's called Founding Gardeners. Um, Andrea Wolf, again, is the author and she was our guest today. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrea. Oh, thank you very much for having me and uh it you know the the book is so descriptive of our identity um so many facts and anecdotes of seeds and trees and natives and plant material. It should be required reading. It should be. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it on my son's. <laughs> Ooh, reading I would list. like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to suggest it at my son's school. <laughs> yeah. And you'll never think of, of our American story as simply a story of how the West was won. It's, it's a much different perspective and, and a real sensitivity towards the landscape and the plants that we offered to the world, basically. Um, it's, it's a lovely book. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you and for joining us today. So we're going to post a link uh, to your website, Andrea. For, thank you. Uh, For President's Day, <laughs> and maybe people will pay attention to something more important rather than the sale <laughs> of washers and dryers.
0: <laughs> well, I would like to thank Carlos Seguera for producing and engineering our show today and to Roberta Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and to our sponsor. If you miss any part of the show, please note it is available via archive on the website, heritageradionetwork.com, and via podcast at iTunes. Please leave comments and or join our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc., We Dig Plants, and on Twitter, We Dig Plants. And also visit our gardening website, groundworksgardens.com. See you in the garden.
1: Happy gardening.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.